What's up, gifted family? Welcome to another episode of the show that is the GP YouTube. Just a reminder that if you support what we do here, make sure to go over to giftedperformance.com and sign up for our automated coaching service. For only a dollar a day, you'll get access to 15 highly customized training programs, a macronutrient calculator, our meal planning feature that lets you build and save meals based on your macros, as well as access to our private Facebook group. All subscriptions help us in continuing to put out great content to get you to your fitness goals. Thanks for stopping by, and without any further delay, let's get into today's video. Enjoy. Welcome back. Another episode of the GPP, the Gift of Performance podcast, where we give you the knowledge and practical insight to improve your own general physical preparedness. Jimmy told me I talk too fast on these. I think it's just because I'm so excited just to be hanging out with my friends. It's the Body Comp crew checking in to answer your questions. And we've got some good ones today. On my screen, I'm going to go in order from top to bottom and ask these gentlemen how they are. On the top, he is a top definitely a power top cameron cheek he's up there oh my he's god good. he is power top just wait I, <laughs> I got a nice little oreo here that cream filling that rosy cheeked cream filling on this one you know who it is it's none other than mr kuza himself twitch.tv <laughs> twitch.tv slash k-u-u-z that's kuz not yes Cuz. yes sub to my twitch sub to my twitch Watch this man just yell at poor people during raid that can't figure out raid mechanics. And our resident mega power thick bottom himself, Polly Rocket, with the new cushion. Big cushion. (laughs) Big cush. (laughs) All right. We got some really quality questions today the first question that we've got today paul even took notes on so paul what's your usual preparation for these podcasts walk us through like hey i've got a podcast recording today what's the routine what's the usual routine it honestly goes down a lot like it did today i'm sitting on the couch my phone notifies me that somebody's calling me on skype (laughs) i realize oh shit maybe it's time i scramble over to my computer so i look like i wasn't just on the couch never answer important skypes on the couch answer it sitting in front of a computer and i go oh fuck i guess it's that time guys huh (laughs) it's that time so that's paul's preparation but he switched it up this week he did a little pre-preparation so this question goes to him at first it is from at sarah petals that's petals like on a flower not petals like sells drugs Sarah, what are you peddling these days? That'd be a good name for like a floral business. Like Sarah Petals Petals. Like she's selling petals. I no, think, I think it, that I think that's it. I, I looked at her Instagram um, and, and there are lots, lots of flowers, I believe. Just cut me in. Just cut me in on the deal when you do officially change that name. Sarah Petals Petals LLC. Sarah asks how to go about programming around or for a weak muscle group. So a muscle group that someone feels is lagging 
behind other more well-developed muscle groups. Yeah. So it actually wasn't intentional preparation. I just happened to get a question and answer it for this person. But I, I, I've been wanting to bounce this off you guys anyway to see if what you guys think about, you know, the, the way I think about this question. So with me, I would I would start with exercise selection and execution, right? Um, we we got to be able to activate that muscle and we need to be able to hit it effectively, right? And so I, I think that I would start there. Well, like what exercises are you doing and what's your technique look like? Because honestly, like if somebody has had really awful technique or they're maybe doing movements that don't hit the target area um, as well, then that alone could might improve that body part if you change their exercise selection and improve their technique. Um, can you give an example of that? Yeah, dude. So let's just say, no, fuck you. Um, huh? <laughs> no, Cam said, no, fuck you. I'm not giving an example of nothing. Yeah. I can think of a couple examples like, you know, like, uh, let's say somebody wanted to bring up their quads and you look at all their squat like movements and there's not a lot of forward knee travel. It's a lot of like hip, hip driven motion, like, you know, like, hey, let's let's pick movements with better forward knee travel that are going to emphasize emphasize the squat a little more than the hips or even like back. I feel like is a lagging body part for a lot of people and for a lot of reasons. But, you know, um, it could come down to, Hey, we want to improve our lats and, you know, a, uh, wide grip lat pull down is a decent movement, but we can probably find movements that target that area just a little better, you know, something that keeps the elbow in a little closer to the body and, uh, where you can actually, what that cue that I like, uh, elbow to pocket or whatever. And, uh, Shit, I was going to go somewhere or like even from the aspect of you watch a lot of people do their lat pull downs and they they jerk back and it turns into almost like a row type movement, a high row. Um, so, yeah, th that would be, you know, a couple examples where, you know, changing your technique and potentially exercise selection could have a positive benefit on its own before you look at like any other programming variables. So that's where I'd probably start. And uh, do you want to stop there? Do you have any comments on that? Gentlemen, any comments? I think just my biggest pet peeve is when people are like, can't grow my hamstrings. And like their main hamstring movement is like a high foot position leg press. You <laughs> talked about like using movements like not for a certain muscle group, yeah. like really hammering, really hammering my hamstrings by, you know, loading knee flexion. It's like if yeah. your hamstrings get worked during a, a movement that emphasizes knee flexion, you need to go see the doctor because your hamstrings are on the wrong side of your femur. You need to speak to a medical professional as soon as possible. Exactly. Like that, that's a movement that's best served primarily hitting the quads and adjusting your technique to emphasize that, but then also probably secondarily glutes and adductors. So Agreed. one thing I'll add, it doesn't really answer the question, uh, but kind of talking about when athletes are focusing on weak uh, muscle groups. Um, Wait, one thing that was just about exercise selection. There's a whole yeah, bunch Cam. of Let the guy work down his pyramid. Oh, shit. All right. My bad. <laughs> All right. Dom, do you have any exercise selection relevant points that you would like to add? Uh, you guys hit them. It's like people picking the wrong things to think their work like you see it like people doing rows wrong a lot like they'll uh 
they'll try to do rows really emphasize like just the way their setups are poor and stuff you see it a lot and i think that's a big reason why they don't see development the way they want yeah i think dumbbell and barbell rows are bad movements I think uh, I would say like freestanding. Yes. Yeah. I it's tough. It's tough to like really do them right and get enough load in that without like I mean, we've seen uh barbell hip extensions. So uh like when they're rowing and they're moving their whole hips forward. Dom, Dom name name the exercise correctly. It was an underhand flexed arm hip extension. Oh sorry. <laughs> it's a it's a real glute blaster. All right, Paul. Yeah, we're done. I we're think done that's a, that's a that's a tough movement for a lot of people. I feel like a penlay row is probably the best instead of a barbell row. Like, man, people people just destroy penlay rows too. It's like I, I've just switched over mostly to like you can do a seated row, and I want to see your back angle not change, you know, sixty degrees through the movement. Or I'm going to give you a chest supported row, prone dumbbell row, something like that, where we can just completely fix your back angle so that you literally just can't yeah. use any body English or momentum. But, Paul, what's next on the list? Um, oh, and I guess real quick, just to mention, I don't want to go through it all, but then making sure that those movements check most of the boxes for um, what makes up a good hypertrophy movement. Right. So overload over time, eccentric component, stretch, range of motion, all those things. Um, mind muscle connection even. And then from there, that's where I'd start to look at volume, right? Like if you're already doing a shit ton of volume, maybe you're doing too much, or maybe we can bring the volume up. You may not be doing enough because we know that, that volume generally overall pretty much agreed, like the primary driver of hypertrophy. <laughs> um you got to say that with a certain context though, because it's not that tension or load isn't important. And then, uh, from volume, I really, and I think that this tool has been more recently, a little overlooked just because the literature seems to say that, or seems to show that frequency isn't that important, but I really like frequency for bringing up uh, weak body parts, largely anecdotal, but then again, it can be tied to volume, which we know that frequency, um, can be used to increase volumes further or to, what is it? Um, I can't think of like a good term for it. anyways, frequency can be used to, for, to increase or use greater volumes. So like if, if we reach a point where, Hey, like we look at any one day of training and we are sort of at like a top end of volume for what we think might be beneficial or your time constraints um, and just getting everything else done. Like we may say, okay, instead of going from five sets um, twice a week to like seven or eight twice a week or whatever volume increase you want to do, we're going to add a third day where we might do two sets or three sets and you might build from there. And I mean, you know, the frequency, you know, I mean, and it can just range basically, you know, like it could be an every other day thing, three days a week, two days a week, whatever. Um, and then from frequency, I would look at like our other like uh, programming variables in terms of like fatigue management. So, you know, some considerations there might be um, one, 
you like if you're if something's a priority, you're not going to want to do it later in the workout where your quality may suffer um, after doing a bunch of compound lifts for other body parts or whatever. Uh, and then another consideration would be for other muscle groups. Maybe like if we're doing a ton of like back squats and deadlifts for some reason, right? Like that might eat into give us a lot of systemic fatigue that eats into recovery and sort of adaptive ability. So like we may structure, we may swap some of those out for less fatiguing movements that are easier to recover from so that the training around our priority points, um, like I said, just eats into our recovery capacity and adaptive ability a little bit less, right? And then along with that, structuring your days so that they make sense and you're not going into them fatigued. So like, you know, if legs were a, a priority body part like doing a shit ton of barbell rows and and stuff to, that fatigues that might fatigue your lower back you might not want to do that the day before legs that makes sense right and i'm sure i'll think of other stuff but yeah with the programming stuff a lot of it comes down to exercise order and just looking at your training week and trying to make sure you're setting yourself up for having the best training session possible for that weak body part I can tell you've been working on those program design, that program design module. Paul is in charge of the coaching course program design module. I can tell he's been digging into it very, very deep. And one thing I'll add to what I was about to say earlier, uh, a big misconception and uh, I guess incorrect approach to things when you're trying to bring up uh, weak muscle groups is focusing on one or more than one body part at a time and not spending enough time on that body part. Um, you know, a lot of the times you'll see people saying, oh, right now I'm really focusing on bringing up my back and, you know, my delts. And in reality, your total volume that you're doing for your entire body, you only can give so much and specialize in one area. Being able to do it properly without uh or I guess what I'm trying to say is you only can give enough volume to specialize in one body part uh, without things going back, back or backsliding uh, if you end no. up giving too much volume to more than one. No, that's huge. Oh. That goes way, that goes right back to like that fatigue management point and like, you know, saving resources for recovery and adaptation is that like I don't I think it, in, in some cases it's, it could be fine to try and improve like two different body parts, you know, like a big one and a small one or or something that, you know, you say back and rear delts, things that are synergistic muscle groups anyways, you know, but um you know, like I said, it comes back to that fatigue management. And if you're really trying to bring something up, especially as a more advanced individual, volume for other things probably ha should come down some. Yeah. And, and I, I see a lot of people not spending enough time focusing on one body part. And I think it just comes down to people getting bored and needing to change things up or, you know, the excitement of, oh, I'm going to work on this now. When in reality, true specialization of something, you know, if you visually want to make a change to your physique, you know, it may take a year, a year and a half of really specializing on one body part to make it visually look different. Dude, 100%. I remember I had a client not that long ago who was like, hey, this phase, can we, this four week block, can we focus on back and maybe the next one we'll do bicep and the next one we'll do arms all together and then the next one delts. And I'm like, let's try focusing on one thing for six months. 
<laughs> like, you know, let's have realistic expectations for our timeline here. Yeah. Dom, you had something to add. Dom was really Dom, get in there. Sorry, Dom. No, I was just going to say, um, I think you could focus on like Paul. Paul's hit it, though. He said you could probably focus on a bigger muscle and a smaller muscle because we know smaller muscles don't need as much recovery time as bigger muscles do. Like you could hit your biceps every other day and kind of be fine with it as long as volume's not too high. Potentially, um, potentially recovery time, but I think a lot of it honestly comes down to just the overall stress, right? Like the stress that you're putting on the body for rear delt movements, not as great as the stress you're putting on your body for like your yeah. quads. Yeah, and then even that, like if you end up programming, let's say you want to bring up back and biceps, you put bicep movement on like a push day, it's still at the end of the workout. So you know, we're already fatigued from the whole workout. How well are we actually hitting those biceps that day? That's why I think you can frequently hit them like throughout the week. I agree with that. Like, or at the very least, there may be that. That's another thing about frequency. Like, I, I try to keep it as much to the evidence as possible. Like, and say like, hey, so far the the literature, but the there are limitations in the literature. You know, so far the literature shows that frequency isn't that much more beneficial once you account for volume. But I think that there one personal anecdote, and then two, you know, there may be something there regarding hitting a muscle while it's more fresh, right? Like you can increase your volume load over the week. You, you can get you can get more heavier, harder sets throughout a week if you increase frequency, which but may or may not were, be beneficial. If you were to not change the total volume, so let's say, you know, you decided that you were going to do 12 sets per bicep or for biceps per week. So you were doing just 12 sets and you split that up. I could do six sets two times a week or I could do four sets three times a week. Or I could even take that further and go three sets four times a week. Do you think that there's going to be a difference between those distributions in terms of long term outcomes? So you're saying between um, twice so a week, setting so the volume. six sets twice a week. What is that? Four sets, four sets three, three times, times a, week. a week, three four. sets, four times a week. The volume is set. You're just splitting up the frequency more and more. I think the higher you get, you split the frequency, probably the less of a difference you'll see. Like you, you may see somewhat of a difference. And these differences could be very small and only matter to like an elite individual trying to squeeze everything out. Right. Um, but like these small differences, like from two to three, maybe. You know, from three to four, maybe a little less from four, three to four or from two to three, maybe a little less from three to four, probably all completely negligible. You know, um, at some point, though, probably you'd be doing yourself a disservice. Like if you were like, hey, let's try and do this six days a week, you know, yep. like probably at some point you're better off doing more than just one or two sets every single day, you know? I think it depends on body part too. I think if I'm if I'm characterizing your argument correctly, the power and frequency really lies in your ability to do more volume over the course of a week. So the power of frequency is that by training a muscle group four times a week, you can do four sets per session and get 16 sets over the week as opposed to just doing six sets in 
over two sessions, which would be 12 sets a week. So you're actually taking advantage from the increased set volume as opposed to there being some sort of magic around spreading one set amount of volume over an entire week. So from the literature, like that would be 100 percent like accurate but like i think that there is some potential right like because we talked about as far as fatigue goes you know like i mean what one way around that you know like dom mentioned you're hitting your biceps at the end of your back day you know like maybe you you could just put those bicep movements so you don't have all that nervous fatigue going into them and that you can lift greater loads and stuff early in a workout but now you're kind of fucking up your back work right and you might not want to do that like you now you have some extra fatigue and, and we're probably you know your biceps may fatigue before your back does in training and you don't get as quality of a back workout so like the sort of salt the another potential from that is hey let's take some of our bicep sets and let's put them on a push day right and then also it depends on how you define volume like total set volume may stay the same but like net volume load isn't the greatest way to measure a stimulus or to quantify how how effective your workout was but your volume load does go up when you do higher frequency if you can lift greater loads each day Especially yeah. with uh, seen with smaller body parts. Yeah, I think I think smaller body parts is a consideration, but also uh, consideration is I I don't know that Dom said this. I don't know that smaller muscles by um, just by design or whatever recover faster. But I do think some muscles recover faster because of the stresses induced upon them, right? Like a middle delt doesn't get a whole lot of stretch, probably doesn't receive a ton of damage from training versus like if you stretch your chest as much as you can on a on a pec deck or you do a really deep dumbbell press probably induces a little more damage to the pec and impacts how frequently that you can hit it and so a little more care might need to go into volume if you do decide to hit it more frequently shoulders are def delts are definitely a good example of that because i mean i went 10 years in my bodybuilding career without really ever my delts getting sore the only time that my delts are sore was switching over to doing crossfit where i do you know 150 push presses 100 handstand push-ups all this handstand walking in a single workout the amount of volume that it takes to make my delts sore is just it's yeah. just obscene because it's really hard to put it in that stretched position but let me before without taking too long on this question let me let me ask more of like a zoomed out question here so a weak muscle group as a whole usually starts smaller and responds slower right like we look at someone like tom platts he always talked about how his legs were his strong point he start he talks about how his legs were big when he started and they responded extremely well from training whereas his arms started very small and responded very slowly to training do you think that and this kind of goes to what you said about giving it time do you think that weak muscle groups just require a significantly greater amount of time because they start small and because they respond so slowly to training I think that since you said and they respond slowly to training, I, I don't know if the starting point necessarily matters so much, you know, and I but I do think that's true in some cases like I'm that way. Like when before I ever lifted anything, people my dad's friends would be like, dude, you have legs like a linebacker, 
you know, and they're pretty big to this point. And honestly, over when I look at my training career for my legs, I put very the lowest amount of effort than I put into anything else in my body. Um, <laughs> and so uh, and they respond pretty well. And I still do rel- really low volumes for my legs compared to probably what most people do. But then everything else on my body started really fucking small, you know, like so. But See, I, I just think, I think I starting still, point. I think starting point plays an important role in it because if we look at like women, so like if we look at women's starting point when they first train, they start with much stronger, much larger legs. If we compare them to men and much smaller and much weaker upper bodies and when exposing them to training from my anecdotal experience, you give a woman one leg day a week, their legs respond very, very well, but they might need three, four upper body days just to catch their upper body up to where their lower body is in terms of building out that proportion. Part of that could be psychological too, you know, like, you know, getting under a leg press for the first time and realizing you're decently strong at it. Um, you can give higher efforts without feeling like you hate yourself versus like holding some really light dumbbells for the first time and pressing, feeling like you suck, not wanting to do it much, like, you know, kind of giving up on sets a little earlier because it sucks. Wow. Paul, you're just painting such a good picture of women here. No, I mean, Paul confirmed woman hater, Paul. Dom has raised his hand. Yes, Dom. We'd like to call on uh, Mr. Kuza. Let me put my hand down. Um, I think I hope that uh, shows up on the recording. I hope there's just like a big hand uh, over your face. <laughs> I think too, um, it, having frequency increase throughout the week, I think it helps people uh, develop a better mind and muscle too. Like they actually get to go through the movement a couple times a week. Or not even the movement, but like a movement for their back, for example. Um, they just get to focus a bit more on, you know, they're, they're exposed more to feeling their back working. So it might increase their mind to muscle connection a bit more, um, which we know is important to a degree. Um, so I think that's one thing, too. Because I always get like guys that are like, man, I can't feel my biceps like when I'm training. And then we look at their videos and stuff. And most of the time it's just bad form but like once we correct the form then they start feeling it every single time if they're doing biceps three times a week it's just their mind and muscle to that is getting even better throughout the week in my and opinion you could, you could say too that their daily uh fatigue accumulation might be lower for that body part as well so they might be able to go in and train it better and more effectively to feel the movement and have more fresh practice doing those exercises yeah, that's what that goes back to the uh, sort of increased volume tonnage. But and then you actually just hit what I was going to say with one of your words, um, skill, skill uh, development, which is probably a little more important towards like athletics. But there's still something there for bodybuilders, you know, like if we can get you better at doing your squat like movement or whatever faster than you know indirectly that may transfer over time definitely there for bodybuilders based off of some acquisitions yeah jesus (laughs) 
What's your what's your least favorite kind of curl to see at the gym? Like people do incorrectly. I think my least favorite is the one where the person like curls it up halfway and then they do one of these. They like pull it behind them. They're like the whole the hold. Ooh, the hold on the one side. Hold. Oh my fucking god, dude! Preacher curls are doing them together. A disaster to watch. Dude, preacher curls are such a watch. good such a good exercise. That like such an easy exercise to do correctly. <laughs> and they just until, absolutely blast until your some asshole them. has like two twenty fives on each side, and they're doing like a quarter. Some guy asked me to oh spot God. him once, man, and his elbows wrapped up with like not even like lifting wrap, but like injury wrap. And he's <laughs> like, "Yeah, can you spot this for me?" And he had a forty five and a twenty five on an easy bar. He was like, "Can can you like pick it up for me?" No. I, I tore both my biceps previously, and I was just like. <laughs> Oh, I dude, like, I'm going to save you. This. I'm going to save you from yourself. The single <laughs> headband man on L.A., the L.A. Wade Green. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So here's a question that kind of goes with that, and it's from A. Kalabad. He asks, before cardio on off days, could you use an RIR of four to five for one set on a lagging body part? So let's say... You know, before cardio on an off day, you think that quads are your weak point. So you load up the leg press, do one set to a five RIR. Is that going to be an effective strategy for bringing up a lagging body part? It's increasing the frequency. It's increasing, no. My first thing it's increasing the frequency. It's increasing the volume per week. It's checking some boxes, Paul. Honestly, though, here, do you want to start, Cam? I just want to ask why it has to be before cardio. <laughs> Oh, I no, think he was just saying, I, like, I'm there anyway. He was just saying, like, oh. on an off day. Like, oh. I'm doing cardio or just having an off day. Can I, he asked me this question, and I was, uh, I, I don't know, one set, I guess, yeah, and it, it does increase frequency, but I'd rather take the rest than just yeah. have one set. I think the question is, is this, does this reach like a minimum effective threshold of stress slash tension to induce adaptation within that day? And if it's a rest day or an off day from training that body part, do you value that stimulation, that extra fatigue on the muscle as opposed to just recovering for your next big overloading session? Well, <laughs> well, well, I don't know that for our IR. Whether or not it be a great idea, five or greater, though, for this one specific purpose, like we know that or it's been shown, right, that light work can actually enhance recovery. Right. Do it when you say light, do you mean light, light and absolute load? Do you mean when you say light, do you mean light and absolute loads? Do you mean light and relative intensity? Define what Pro you mean relative by light intensity, probably. So like a five RIR, six RIR, something greater. Like yeah, probably. Okay. But like if that was your purpose now, I wouldn't like tell somebody to do this, but and I might not ex if this increased volume a significant amount, somebody might actually get a benefit from it, especially if they were newer, you know, like especially if somebody was because we know that you can take a beginner, right? And they can do one set and get a big benefit from it. Yeah. You know? So like if somebody was untrained enough, potentially like this could improve their lagging body part. So when you say that it's been shown that, you know, light work facilitates recovery, facilitates usually recovery it's like cardio, like compared it's to like, what? Huh? So like does when it comes to recovery, does cardio or does a light set of leg press improve recovery when compared to doing nothing? I believe so. Yeah. 
I, I know that's a huge argument for deloads. And when we talk about recovery, what what do we what what specific physiological systems are we recovering? Nervous system. I think system, we're just talking about issue. the ability to uh, perform again, match performance. Yeah. So I'm. I mean, I'm I'll, of I'll the, say I'm my of the legs always feel that, better. Sorry. Go ahead. And, and also what Dom said. Adding so, classic, classic, volume. Classic. Nope, 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 Paul, you're done. You're done. Adding additional volume is not going to, or adding additional work, adding additional to the stress, whether it be low stress, high stress, somewhere in between, isn't going to assist with recovery. Hey, you got really sore from leg press. The best way to recover from that leg press is to do more leg press. That is, that's not, that is not an opinion or a statement that I, that I can get behind. I would think that full rest and recovery are going to be. Well, I mean, so I, I prefer full rest and recovery for myself, but that is the argument for deloads. And Dom, I think, was about to say this or in the middle of saying it or whatever, um, that that can reduce Dom significantly. Like doing doing some activity improve Dom, improves Dom's faster than um, doing nothing. That's fine because DOMS is a subjective measure. So you tell someone, hey, we're doing a study that looks at, you know, whether like a light set of leg press helps you recover. People already have it in their head like, oh, man, this light set of leg press might help me recover. And they're like, hey, do you feel better? And they're like, oh, yeah, I do. I feel I feel a lot better. We see the same thing with like foam rolling, stretching, that kind of stuff. So it's not, I agree it's not improving you. objective measures of recovery. It's not improving measures of creatine kinase, um, myoglobin, things like that, that are actual subjective blood markers of muscle damage. So I agree with you 100%. I hate looking at studies and DOMS. I criticize the fuck out of them. I'm like, dude, how do we even fucking know that this person knows what the fuck they're telling this fucking, you know what I mean? Survey, it's survey data. <laughs> survey data is fucking dick. Uh, but I'm sure, I know at least I, and I'm sure most of us have had anecdotal circumstances where we've had heavy DOMS, we've decided to go train, and we're like, hey, this got better faster than, you know, months ago when I had Dom's doing something else or a different time in my life where I did nothing. Listen, man, this is purely an empirical podcast. We are empiricists <laughs> here. We only go by what the data We're says. We're evidence we limited. Have, we take, <laughs> we are we take, only, if the evidence doesn't say we take it, then no, <laughs> We take no rational considerations into our, our into our arguments. There can be no anecdote. There is only data. Anything outside of the data is a lie. That's but no, so when I look at like, all right, so let's take your definition of recovery as the ability to perform at a baseline level. What goes into, and this is just a genuine question, not a loaded question where I'm going to be like, haha, you're wrong because I have the actual answer. Um, what goes into like performing again at baseline? I would say like muscle damage, probably acute uh, factors into that, um, some sort of substrate peripheral nervous system fatigue. What else? Punishment. Substrate replenishment. Probably ions too. So um, probably a bunch of shit I don't know about. But I, I would probably go back to muscle damage, um, substrate replenishment, so intramuscular glycogen, triglycerides, whatever else is used up, whether that be ions, you know, replacing um, things like intramuscular stores of things that contribute to the ATP, so creatine, phosphates, all that. <laughs> Um, yeah, take creatine. 
things that we can things that we can measure though right things that we can uh, objectively we can take a muscle biopsy we can take a blood well, sample we can also this. measure recovery in terms because there probably is a psychological aspect no, and that. then you're like fuck that <laughs> um <laughs> and uh what's it called um some subjective measures. So, soreness, I, although soreness may not limit performance, we know that there often is sort of uh, a relationship or correlation there. Yeah. Soreness induced performance. So, soreness, byproduct of muscle damage, muscle damage, what's actually causing that drop off in performance. I think well, that that's I, probably I how I would go down that. Because sometimes you can have a lot of damage potentially and maybe not have a lot of soreness right so like really like even the damage like the soreness may be related to some other immune response yeah inflammatory. Your, your damage could be largely healed but you still have doms right yeah but i guess Dom, i guess that Dom, you're getting a lot of shout outs on this one on too. i know Go ahead. I like when it. people talk about doms do you think they're talking about you and all of the other doms in the world Yes. Okay. Because right. it's all about me. <laughs> at a I know we didn't give you much of a great answer. It ended up just kind of like be being like me and Paul yelling at each other and Cam checking his phone. But can one extra set help? Maybe. I'm I'm gonna be in the probably not category. Paul's gonna be in the go for it category. Probably Paul, not. Paul's maybe in the some sure. circumstances. Paul, Paul, this is one of those where a client asking Paul just goes. Do whatever the fuck you want. Sure. <laughs> if you ever hear sure from Paul, forget you asked the question and don't do whatever you asked. <laughs> he just doesn't have, want to fuck with it right now. I have some other, I have some other funny remarks, but I'm going to say I'm just take the rest day. Restraint. Take a rest day, man. I, just, like, I say just take the rest day and please don't turn into an idiot that's about to burn out. Honestly, are you training to get as big as possible? Take the rest day. Are you training because you enjoy spending time in the gym lifting weights? Then go do your extra one set or two. No, yeah, Cam Cam honestly gave the best answer right there because it's like, hey, take your rest day, take those one or two other sets that you would do in the week and put them on a training day. Call it a day. (laughs) That's some great practical advice. That's what you get here at the Give to Performance Podcast. Should we do the next one? All right, this one comes from at Michael P. James underscore. So Michael actually texted me some stage shots where he looked absolutely nasty. And he said during those final weeks of cardio or those final weeks of contest prep when he was doing cardio, he listened to strictly the Gifted Performance YouTube channel. So, Michael, the reason that you got so shredded is because of us. Um, we'll, we'll post our addresses below and you can choose who you want to send your prize winnings and your trophies to because let's be honest those trophies they are our trophies he's just gonna send a bill he's like this is what i got out of competing you have to pay my competition (laughs) bill thanks (laughs) all right so this is a question that's relevant for michael as he's kind of transitioning out of the contest prep period right now he said what are the benefits to taking a slower or a faster approach to weight gain post show or an aggressive dieting period so he wanted to he wanted to add that caveat at the end that if you just aggressively dieted let's say for a male dieted down to eight percent body fat or lower or for a woman down to like 14 to 15 percent body fat or lower we'll call that an aggressive dieting period so what are the benefits to taking a slower 
or a faster approach. So let's do some pros and cons here on a slower approach. What are the pros to going slower in terms of your weight gain after a contest prep? Uh, you don't get fat. You don't get fat. You'll you stay look, more insulin sensitive. Yeah, your insulin sensitivity, the, the precious P ratio will stay a little bit higher. How relevant is that? Uh, I think some recent data is is starting to point out that that might not be as relevant as we once thought. Um, you look good for longer if you've got photo shoots. Let's say you're someone like oh, Camp remind me, Joe. Remind me to come back to the insulin sensitivity thing later, but go on. We shall. But let's say you're someone like Cam's client, Joe. Um, Joe will probably, after he finishes his contest prep, have quite a few photo shoots and quite a few, like, you know, engagements that are monetarily advantageous for him to stay leaner. That's a good reason. If it's part of your career, that's a good reason to stay leaner post-show. That's about all I've got. I'm open to hear any other ones that you guys have in terms of, Paul, you want to talk in Like slower? Yeah, gaining slower. You mean uh, fast? No, no. Sorry. Uh, I, I have mostly cons, so I'm kind of just waiting it out. Yeah, my cons are my, my cons. And I, honestly, all. all the cons have to do with the pros. So, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, like, you might get laid more often, but honestly, like, there's no guarantee that, like, the systems involved yeah, in than, getting laid other will than just work. psychological. <laughs> other than I will, just psychological the person that's probably the only thing i could think of being slower because people have issues with getting soft pretty quick after a show so you're so like feeding, you're feeding their disorder <laughs> wow uh, yeah. that, was actually, for that. that was actually one thing known for disorders me. yeah he uh, messaged me he was like don't you feel like going slower might feed into some like disordered eating or disordered thinking where they have to be leaner for longer and i said I, you know absolutely i don't know if it's necessarily a benefit um, but I will say if somebody can nail their dieting, um, post or nail their diet, I guess, nail their nutrition post diet. Um, I feel like the opportunity to adapt to food increases and food changes, you might be able to work yourself up to a higher food intake at a leaner body weight. Um, again, I don't know if that's necessarily going to be beneficial, um, but yeah, I'm I'm more for a faster approach, especially if it's a long diet. <laughs> Paul, you're smart. What's the uh, what's the current what's your current stand on like fat cell hyperplasia after a contest prep? So for someone who dieted down very lean and then gained fat very rapidly, you'll hear some people talk about the the potential for that fat cell hyperplasia, where fat cells not only grow but they also split and increase in number. Yeah. I mean, I, I have heard that. I believe I've seen that claimed as a, a theory or potential in literature. I don't know how meaningful that is um, in real life, like or actually how much it happens in real life and how meaningful that is for the future. Like Cam and I have both been incredibly fat. I, I still stay softer than Cam does. But like Cam, Cam was a was fucking fat. You were fat as shit. Um, (laughs) But I mean, how how much other than maybe some looser skin? I mean, you you don't have the trouble staying leaner now. I don't know how, (laughs) but but yeah, I think think it just comes with time. Yeah, there are a lot. Tom, were you a fat kid? No, I was a little soccer. You were. 
Yeah. And then I then I lost it like beginning of high school. Yeah. I think so, I'm so, the only so. naturally like rail thin skinny I, boy here. Yeah, I think you are. So one thing I did want to address with those pros is that they're also cons, right? So staying later longer, you'll find that the vast majority of the population can't stick to it. And they actually don't stay leaner longer. They do a bunch of cheating and binge eating and they just end up fatter than if they would have done a faster reverse dieting approach. But some people can, can stick with it. And then when it comes to insulin sensitivity, first thing I want to mention is that is one aspect of muscle gain, right? Probably many other systems involved in muscle gain are going to work better if you don't stay in contest shape for very long, right? Especially if you're natural. Um, and then the second thing with that is yes, muscle blood insulin or muscle insulin sensitivity stays higher, but so does fucking fat, <laughs> you know? So like it, you, you would probably be better off in terms of a muscle gaining standpoint and your even your muscle insulin sensitivity because what what increases muscle insulin sensitivity training right but your fat insulin sensitivity probably not increased that much from training you know maybe a little bit from like uh um what is it liberating and metabolizing and oxidizing a little fat yeah but primarily it's going to be your muscle so yeah, I mean, well, I would say so if it like, like post show, if a person's like insanely lean, how much is insulin sensitivity really going to go down if they take an aggressive approach after? If they're from an extremely up and lean, get to 10 to 12, 15. Yeah, like how 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 much is that really going to? How much how much insulin resistance are they going to accumulate if they're aggressively coming out of a show? What, Probably I, not much. What I would say is insulin sensitivity. A lot of people look at it like a, a static thing, right? So like, but like, yeah, if you get to 12% body fat from five in like two weeks, probably for some time frame, your insulin sensitivity is going to be ass, right? Yeah. And, but then it levels out. But like, so there probably is something to be said there, you know? It's so not that's a, a bit aggressive. Seven percent body fat in two weeks. <laughs> it's been done. It's been done. I mean, because like, what, what increases insulin sensitivity? Things being depleted, right? So if you gain, yeah. even even if you're not fat, but you you fucking fill everything up as rapidly as possible, like yeah. So if we look at the cons on the going slower approach, I think if you just if you just make a list of all the negative side effects that you ran into during contest prep, decreased sex drive, increased hunger, increased cra uh, cravings, training quality is terrible. You're not sleeping, extremely hyper food focused. All of that stuff, when you go slower, sticks around for longer. So like Paul said, you can knock all that stuff out in two weeks if you take a more rapid approach. But if you want to go slower, you have to understand that these aren't things that are going to go away very quickly. All of those negative side effects are the influence are influenced by two things, low energy availability. If you're going slower, your energy availability is going to stay low or low body fat. If you go slower, your lower body fat is also going to influence those. So until you handle those two big things, you're 
current state of body fat being low, you have to gain body fat and low energy availability. You need to increase your calorie intake. None of those negative side effects are going to go away very fast. Some people get those side effects really fucking bad. Some individuals don't get much of those side effects at all. I suspect that the individuals who can stay leaner longer after a show are just the ones that are genetically blessed not to have those side effects be quite as bad. But everyone's going to suffer from them at a certain level of low body fat and low calorie intake. And the only thing I'd add to that is like, usually these questions are two extreme ends of the spectrum. Like most people probably could stand to do something in the middle, big calorie increase on the front end, but not so much that they just completely undo everything they did for 16 plus weeks, 20 weeks, and then go slow from there. Yeah, people people yeah. think that that rate of gain post show has to be linear. They think that if I gain really fast right out of the gate, I need to maintain that fast rate of gain. When in actuality, what you can do with someone's calories immediate post show is bring them up a good bit for you know two three weeks, knock out all those side effects, and then you can actually start to bring them down or taper them down a little bit just to decrease that rate of gain or slow down that rate of gain. You, you know what's one thing I do with uh, reverses? I'll I'll bring them up usually to like maintenance and I'll, I'll like use primarily fats or carbs and I'll just add like, just I'll make them go to maintenance just with carbs uh, or whatever they preferred better throughout the whole prep. And like, they seem to maintain their diet a lot better post-show because they're eating all the foods they want to eat. And like, I'll just focus on one of those for a couple weeks and then start adding in the others you notice a difference based on on sexes? I think women tolerate fat post show better. And fats. I yeah. usually go with fats for the girls. Yeah, and men tend men tend to handle the carbs a lot better. I think with women, a lot of it has to do with they they get a, it seems as though they get a greater health benefit out of it. Yeah, just probably yeah. just because of that cholesterol mediated hormone fluctuations that come with prep as the dietary fats come down. Do we answer that question all the way? I think so. We're I think so, Michael. I think we I think we nailed that one for you, bud. Congrats on your uh, congrats on your contest prep. You looked like an absolute sick mf'er up there. See, we don't even curse on this cup podcast anymore. This is truly for the kids. I've dropped so many bombs. <laughs> <laughs> the next. The next motherfucking question comes from at Meg.cic. I think her last name is Chicote. 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 Right? Damn it. God damn it. I suck. That's yours, so this right, would be Meg Sick. That is sick. Um, Meg asks, I've seen some coaches preach about tracking BGL, blood glucose levels. What are your thoughts? It's your favorite kind of question, Dom. Thoughts. What are your thoughts? <laughs> I mean, I could see where it could be beneficial, like fasting blood sugar in a real big growth phase when food's really high, um, back to insulin sensitivity and resistance. Um, but like some people like throw this like pretty intense, like they won't eat post-workout if they're not at 65 blood glucose. That's like, fucking dark, they, yeah, I don't understand that. I, and I remember she asked me this question after somebody had posted like, oh, going to eat when I hit 70 and then I'll eat. Like, why? Sounds like Phil Viz. 
is your muscle not going to use it? Do, do your muscles not still need like? Yeah, it's 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 definitely majoring in the minors. And also that is such a varying thing from individual to individual, right? Like, because it's it's not just the glucose from the food that you ate before, but your liver is pumping out glucose. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This isn't even liver, like so many other things go into it. Your liver could just be like, better at managing like water at a certain level. <laughs> if a person's not hydrated enough and they take their blood glucose, it could be high. If they don't have enough sodium in the meal before or right before they take it, it could be high. There's so many different things like, like, okay, you could wake up, um, you could wake up and you know, your liver dumps a bunch of blood glucose when you wake up, right? For some people it's called dawn phenomenon. Um, and then you'll, you'll test it like a 130 and you'll be like, oh my God, I'm pre-diabetic. And then if all you needed to do was just drink a glass of water, wait like 20 minutes, and you'd probably be at a normal fasting blood glucose. Could you, so because a function of cortisol is to liberate fuel, could you actually stress yourself out so much about your blood glucose levels that you increased your blood glucose levels? I, I'm sure there's some way to do that. <laughs> so this isn't even I would lump this in. The saying is missing the forest for the trees. This isn't even missing the forest for the trees. This is missing the forest for one leaf. Like you are looking at one tiny little minuscule variable. Now, hear me out on this one. So because you, you mentioned Phil Viz. So Phil in his last contest prep, he during his peaking, <laughs> he was he was measuring his blood glucose levels throughout the entire peak. Do you think that there's any value to measuring blood glucose during a peak? Based off how he looked on stage, no. <laughs> <laughs> so let's remove that. Let's say that, you know, we're, we're doing it with some other client. Or is it just going to tell us something that we already know? Like, hey, you know, I just pounded a Gatorade and, you know, 40 grams of honey. And, oh, my God, my blood glucose level is high. Like, no fucking shit. Well, not, okay, not even that. Let's say they do that. Sometimes if they're soft and they're, let's say they're soft and their body weight didn't move or something like that. Like, they probably need more food. If, if their blood glucose was high at that point but you're not going to feed them if their body's kind of giving you the indication that it needs more food. What you, I will, you hear what I'm trying to say? You may. I'll, yeah. I'll also say that there's that they, they're still trying to get what's in their blood in into a muscle or a compartment or something. Um, so you may look at that as maybe we need to give this meal a little more time, you know? I'll also say, too, that there's a lot of variables and factors and dials to turn when peaking someone to base your soul decision off of a, a reader, you know? Yeah, that's huge. Huge. Absolutely huge. Do we want to do one more here? I think we got time for one more. Damn, we are going to get five done in one Q&A, guys. This has to be a PR for us. Let's not let's not let's not short this moment let's go ahead and let's pat ourselves on the back here uh jenna question from at jenna firestone she asks how crucial is stretching slash foam rolling for muscle growth my retort is stop lifting weights and only foam roll and stretch and tell me how big you get and then you'll know just how crucial it actually is and now i'm going to pass it over to my friends here to give you a less sarcastic asshole answer 
I talk only much. if you hook That's yourself dope. up to an Eastem machine. While you <laughs> oh god! It's for the last fucking time. It's not a goddamn Eastem. Oh man, we're about to lose a client. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> hey, Lenny, cut that. <laughs> Fifty-four. Uh, um, <laughs> Paul, Paul, Paul. I actually want to ask you a question on this. GC style stretching was a huge thing for a while. How beneficial do you think that is? I'm I'm not gonna say that there's no effect, but it was based off of really shitty literature. It was based off of literature where they hung weights off of like bird wings. Yep. And like extremely something that in order to reproduce that effect in humans, we wouldn't be able to test it because it's um, unethical <laughs> and extremely painful oh, and excruciating. Yeah. yeah. And so no. in a bird that produced hyperplasia is that I'm not saying it doesn't do anything because we do know that like we can take like a little muscle cell, for instance, and um, induce tension by stretching it and it hypertrophies. We know that if we put somebody in a cast in a stretch position, that some hypertrophy happens, although it's not cross-sectional area, it's in length. So whether that, that length hypertrophy is beneficial for a bodybuilder, I'm not sure. Um, so like maybe there's an effect it's probably a small effect it's probably i don't i i wouldn't think that it's what's what what is dc style stretch is that so that's like where you do one of the big like myo rep sets or rest pause sets and then you stretch immediately after right yeah but usually like let's say you wanted to stretch your lats you might hang like an 80 pound dumbbell off a belt and like hold on that's a well that's a loaded stretch that's far different loaded stretches yeah so it's supposed to be like i think i've even heard people call it extreme dc style extreme stretching extreme dc style stretching so damn that's hard usually it's loaded of some kind yeah. So I think that there's a big difference between bend over and touch your toes stretching, standard static stretching and like a loaded eccentric. Because it, it correct me if I'm wrong, but man, I don't know, because it wouldn't actually be a loaded eccentric because you're not actually going through the lengthening portion of it. It would just be a loaded isometric as opposed to a loaded eccentric. Right. Yeah. It'd be like a loaded isometric in the lengthened form. Yeah, I'm not sure because the tension stimulus that's felt by the muscle that sets off hypertrophy requires that full eccentric stretching. If well, we do know that stretching alone can cause hypertrophy, but that hypertrophy seems to primarily be longitudinal. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And that's also how we do like it when we study cell hypertrophy, we literally stretch it to induce tension. Yeah. Damn, that's some cool shit. All right, let's go with foam rolling here. So foam rolling for muscle growth. Dom, you bring the foam roller to the gym every day. Is that the key to your gains? You just roll those glutes and they just explode? (laughs) Most people foam roll wrong. (laughs) Wait, you just seem like. So, yeah, swinging on the floor, back, like a little, yeah, like a little seesaw for thirty minutes before my gym, before I train. So, I, I what do we, what do we think the, 
yeah, what do we think the benefit of foam rolling in a hypertrophy context might be? Foam rolling in and of itself is not hypertrophic, but how could I use a foam roller or some of these mobility-focused modalities to improve my hypertrophic outcomes? I'm sure you can improve your range of motion if something's tight and needs some relief. When you don't, um, or you can put it behind your back on a hack squat and change your hack squat up. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Just when you don't have the requisite mobility to do whatever task. Yeah, full range of motion on a task, and that that neurophysiological response that you get where the brain is interacting with that muscle from that pressure response is a very short lived or a very a very transient phenomenon so the best way to get the most out of that foam roller lacrosse ball whatever the kind of modality they're using here is to do it and then immediately get up and perform the movement through a full pain-free range of motion if you have that full range of motion good you're done foam rolling for the day if you're still missing you know a couple degrees of range of motion hop down roll where you might feel tight and then do it again until you've kind of fully opened up that that range of motion I agree. I can. I agree. Okay. Well, I disagree. I whatever you, whatever the outcome you want is, just beat it into submission. Just so when I worked, when I worked at, when I was interning at UCF, they used to foam roll with like one inch PVC, like thick, thick PVC, and they would like push each other down into it. And I didn't know any better. And I was just like, these guys are hardcore. I tried it when no one was looking once. And I like almost cried a little bit. Like a couple of tears came out. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm not built for band. this. The IT band. I got to release my IT band. Dude, why, man? IT Get band. your leg held together. You don't want to do that. Also, like, I'm pretty sure to like stretch it a little bit requires thousands of pounds of force. Thousands. Yeah. It was like, uh, I think it was uh Gregor Gregory Knuckles, old uh, Gregor Nipples, he um, looked at some research that was like deforming the plantar fascia of the feet, and it required like it's like, like, like four thousand five thousand pounds or some shit. <laughs> yeah, it's like eight hundred newtons. I don't even know what that is. Eight hundred <laughs> Isaac Newtons standing. I don't know how heavy Isaac Newton was. He's probably a pretty big dude. He you know found out about gravity and whatnot. He probably took advantage of that. A lot of eccentric loading that he was using. So he was probably pretty jacked standing on your foot. Enough to basically break your foot, just to deform the fascia by you know ten percent. Got to release the fascia. Release. It. Love that. Love that explanation. But that's not All to right. say rolling those areas doesn't give some effect. It's just I think a lot of people assume things that may not be true. Like oh, we're 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 stretching the fascia. No, like you're probably getting some neuromuscular relaxation in some other muscle or in that area. And you have increased range of motion, less pain, whatever it may be like. Yeah, your body, you're providing tension to an area. The brain is sensing that tension. It's saying, hey, you know, relax that area a little bit. You stand up, you go through that range of motion. Everything is blah, blah, blah. This is too much talking about foam rolling. It ain't that big of a deal, Jenna. If you're tight, roll it out, get up, move around, stretch if you want to. Make sure you emphasize the eccentrics. Don't, don't be afraid to throw some pauses in your training as well. All of that will help your range of motion more than being that guy who's in the corner of the gym foam rolling for, for 30 minutes doing doing the, the foam roll dance that Dom was doing earlier. I liked that. It's actually funny uh, now that you say that. Like People will be like, how do I increase like hamstring mobility? I'm like, do stiff like deadlifts and over time try and do them better. 
yeah. <laughs> like try to do them so deeper. Like <laughs> I have a client that I think is, I think he has like rebar instead of hamstrings. He was born without a semitendinosis. He just has like steel rods back there. So what I have him do is I just have him do like loaded Jefferson curls with like a 30 second hold at the bottom of each rep. Man, that's really lighten up my hamstrings. Yeah. So I can get further down on each rep. Yeah. That's what we're going here for. We're going for here, buddy. <laughs> so shout out to old Jimmy. Not the, not Mrs. Jimmy. This is Mr. Jimmy. It's very confusing to me when we got both of those Jimmy's going. Um, I think that is it for the day, guys. Are you guys, are you guys pooped? I'm actually we're feeling pooped. really good, man. <laughs> Paul, no, I'm awake right. now. I'm good. All right, I'm next question. <laughs> I'm just joking. all right, guys. Thanks for asking your questions. Um, before we started recording, we compiled all the questions that we have, and we have approximately a metric fuck ton. There are quite a few that we still have left to answer, but we will continue to knock those out on a weekly basis for you. If you did not see yours answered, it will be coming soon. We do not miss a question unless it's just a horrible question. So if you didn't see your question answered, ooh, maybe work on those question asking skills. We will catch you on the next one. As always, like, comment, subscribe. Make sure the algorithm um, loves us so that we can get ad rich and buy an island in Sri Lanka to live on. Um, we'll catch you on the next one. As always, stay gifted. Oh. Hey, baby boo. Hi. Wow.